0: Hey
1: everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast, investigative journalism today. I like that. My guest is Nathan Magoo from Besa. Did you know? I mean, you and I have known each other, got 20 years, something like that. It was literally, what, three weeks ago when we had dinner that I knew what BESA actually stood for.
0: Yeah, it's very, very technical. (laughs) For sure.
1: I like that. Now, before we jump in, because we're going to talk about actually some real stuff today. But before we do that, give a little bit of your background, because you have one of the most fascinating backgrounds of anyone I know. I think you were 12 years old running a (laughs) commercial bank. Is that right?
0: No, I so I started my career at Capital One, and I had the crazy opportunity to start there when I was uh, actually I got my offer to start there when I was seventeen. So, and are you uh, in high school at the time? No, or- I was in I was in college. I was in my freshman year of college. I, I graduated high school when I was sixteen. Started college at sixteen, and so it was like spring semester, and a college recruiter came from Capital One. They had bought a small auto finance company, and they were college recruiting for it. And so, my professor at the time. Gave them my name and uh, they called me and took me to lunch. And I was like, you know, no one's ever offered to buy me lunch other than my parents, probably. So (laughs) I was like, wow, that's great. So I went in for testing and then I got an offer and uh, I thought I was, you know, going to be the king of the world when I saw the offer. But this
1: was like a full time real job, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah. It was a a risk position. And so um, once I filled out all the paperwork and they realized I was 17, I think they assumed that I was, you know, 20 or so. Uh, I didn't look it definitely, but I guess because of the class that I had been recruited from, and so I uh, I got the offer and filled out the paperwork, and they go, "Oh wait, you're 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 17. We can't hire a 17 year old for for this position." So um, anyway, we basically they made an agreement where they they said we want to continue, you know, we want to hire you, we want to honor the offer, but you can start, you know, after your 18th birthday. And so I turned 18 in September and and started four days later, I guess, like October 1st. And um, subsequently spent four years there as they were growing this auto finance business. Historically, Capital One was all card. And so they were under this sort of diversify out of purely being subprime card. And so they bought subprime auto. And so that's where I spent most of my time. And over four years that I was there, I think I had five or six promotions. It was pretty incredible. So Um, just a lot of growth and a lot of opportunity to learn and take on tasks that an 18, 19 year old would have never probably been able to take on otherwise. And, um, just,
1: did you ever have to repo a car? Uh,
0: yeah, well, so (laughs) I, I never directly worked in, worked in repo, but I was in loan servicing for quite uh, a long time. And so, um, my last title was manager of risk operations. And so risk included, you know, all these loan servicing activities. And so, um, every once in a while you know, calls from repossession accounts that were in repossession would get circulated around for training purposes and stuff. So I, I heard them. I, I knew I was aware of them, acutely aware of interesting stories that you wouldn't believe that, oh, that's uh, awesome. you know, people trying to avoid repossession or people tying, chaining dogs to their cars or hiding their cars and, and all kinds of stuff. So. so
1: how'd you, so you're there, you're Lone shark car guy, how do you get into oil and
0: gas? So, my best friend, we met, uh, his name's Brady, and we met um, our, literally our first day of, of college. We we're in a psychology class and just kind of introduced ourselves to one another. And so, we became really good friends and we would hang out. And I was, you know, doing really well at Capital One, and he was continuing on in school. And um, his father was one of the two co founders of BESA. And so, we got to know one another, and uh, he just said, you know, I'd love to have you come in and look at what we're doing, and you know what my dad's company is doing, and um, see if you know we've got some ideas. Maybe you come up with some ideas, and and so I got in there, and I, most of my career at Capital One was involved in analytics, pretty deep analytics, and so um, got in and I said, you know, let me if if you'll open things up to me and let me see them, and they they did in a way that I don't think outsiders had ever kind of seen what they were doing, um, and I I just saw some opportunities that I thought might be interesting. And one of those was diversifying the cap stack to include some private equity. Um and so we we did that. And uh how
1: old are you then? When you're 21 probably. Okay.
0: Yeah. So I was I was very young. And um uh, I'll never forget I, I called the uh the attorney who built our first private equity structure for us and, you know, had done a lot of similar structures in the past. And I went to the first meeting with him and I was like twenty one years old. And he's <laughs> he's probably like, Who is this kid? And Similar story with some guys that, you know, so, um, our bank lead bank at the time was BNP Paribas. And so I, I go in and, and Brian and, and, uh, Gabe Ellisor and, and these guys I'm meeting with and they're like, who's, whose kid is this? You know, so. <laughs> who's the intern? Exactly. Yeah. And, uh, and so now, you know, now we've all been friends for 20 years, 18, 19, 20 years as well. So, uh, so that's how I got in the business. And then, and then once I joined up with the guys and joined the base of team, I love the business. There's a lot of opportunities, uh, especially in what we do to get a hold of levers and move things that are meaningful um, and and create value. And and so once I joined in with them, I just over time took on more and more that I had no experience with. But, you know, whether it be marketing or hedging or, you know, whatever the case may be, um, electricity, something we're going to spend some time on today was one of those things. So it didn't really fit a bucket for a geologist, an engineer, a normal kind of technical oil and gas person. Um, and really it's just something that someone needed to pay attention to and learn because it was our largest portion of our LOE. It represents 50% of our our operating costs in the field. So I've got a whole soapbox that I'm gonna do something
1: on this summer. Cause I think one of the biggest problems we have recruiting people into this industry. And you're like a poster boy for it is we have this whole thing about tenure. I have 127 years of experience. Therefore <laughs> this, as opposed to what young kids can do with an iPhone and data. Yeah. And you're, you're kind of going to be my poster boy on, well, look, let's if get, you give a young, smart person access to data, look what they can go figure out.
0: You throw smart around loosely, but <laughs> young, 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 I fit the bill for it. The, in, the,
1: <laughs> in the world of the blind, the one man's king. <laughs> there so you go. yeah.
0: I mean, another great example of that would be the Rice Brothers. You know, Danny and Toby are, are guys I've known for since 2012. I We had the opportunity to hang out together in 2012 and, and get to know one another. And then I saw them after that grow rice and uh, go through the EQT stuff. And then they're still doing a lot of – they're doing stuff outside of EQT as well The fam, on the family side. And uh, that's all really interesting. And their whole approach has just been, you know, let's forget all that that's the way we've always done it. And yeah. and that's something that I learned early in my work at Capital One, you know, we bought this old company, um, this very small company that was family owned and you know, we, everyone was kind of setting their ways of doing stuff. And so you had all these new folks come in from Capital One and, and go, well, why are we doing it that way? And, and base, I had some opportunities like that too. And, and we find those opportunities every day. And so, you know, real quick, cause I have to do this every time. Toby. I'll look at the camera. Toby, I love you, but Ryan is
1: my favorite Rice brother.
0: Do you know? Oh, Ryan? I didn't I didn't even mention Ryan. Yeah. Right, right. So, so, so the uh, Well Danny's daughter is in my daughter's grade at the same school.
1: Oh god. So you. they
0: moved from Pennsylvania down to Dallas. And so we we see each other at football games and stuff like that. Big fan of the Rice
1: Brothers. I've got great stories, that we'll tell offline about <laughs> perfect, Ryan. Perfect, perfect. But no, so tell, tell me about kind of BASA and what kind of asset y'all buy and stuff, because I think that's important to the story we're
0: about to talk through. Sure. So we are consistently looking for acquiring and, and operating mature, primarily oil-weighted, primarily water flood type assets. So if you said, what does your average well look like? I would say it was drilled in 1950 and makes three barrels of oil a day and 300 barrels of water and it's in a water flood and it's 3600 feet deep you know something along those lines um so just for reference the old old famous east texas field we own them we're the largest owner operator in the old east texas field today Um, and then we have several other water floods scattered across texas historically we've operated in. Oklahoma, New Mexico, Louisiana, and Texas, and we've divested of all of the other states um, over the last several years. And today, we're solely in Texas. We operate, own, and operate six thousand wells here. Uh, The majority of what we own and operate, we own and operate on the company's own account. But we do have a couple of private equity partnerships that invest alongside us as well. So, and
1: I know um, your lawyers will freak out if you talked about that and all. So, I'll brag about you. You guys kicked ass.
0: I mean, can I, I, I don't even know if I can confirm that. Yeah, I, I, exactly. I my, you just sit chief. there.
1: You sit there and don't don't move, don't nod or whatever. But you guys did a really good job because uh, on I think three fronts. One, it seems like y'all always bought right. Um, two, operational, y'all do as well as anyone out there on stuff, and you guys haven't been shy to sell something when you need to. You know.
0: Yeah, and, yeah, and and we you know BESA stands for you alluded to this right. earlier. The highly technical BESA stands for buy and sell anything or some people say buy anything, sell anything so um you know but historically, I would say we're primarily buyers. we spend you know most of our time trying to figure out you know what the next a- asset we want to go after is and um and it's you know so I've been sitting in the seat for eighteen nineteen years, and so many of the assets that we have bought it's kind of funny how things work out uh that we've eventually bought were assets that maybe we looked at it sometime long ago and then um you know we missed it and one of our other buddies like len energy or somebody like that won it and then later we ended up with it um or you know that we made 17 unsolicited one one particular asset i think we made 17 unsolicited offers on and we ended up finally acquiring it in 2020 um 2021 so you know we just stay you know consistent we never chased the shale we never chased the resource plays it wasn't you know we kind of Kept it simple, stupid, effectively. So, you know, stuck with what we knew, knew and what we did well, and and we typically follow and have had our best successes probably following behind the majors. So we buy old mature assets from Exxon, Chevron. I think we bought from each of them at least eight or nine times. Um, and so, you know, just buy stuff that's really not critical. I get or, that or question
1: a lot on a management team. What makes a good management team? And the thing I saw from my twenty years financing folks it's like people that stick to their knitting that understand what they do well and just focus on that because it's always when you get outside of what you know that you're kind of just falling into
0: unknown land you know and yeah. so absolutely i mean there's so many nuances to our business and you get people all the time obviously in the boom times you get your buddies in real estate that say hey i want to get oil and gas and you know all this stuff and i'm, I'm like there's so many nuances to our business and I mean, we're going to talk about electricity today for crying out loud. Most people, when they think about oil and gas, don't think about electricity, but it's for a group like us that's moving a ton of fluid a day, every day, um, you know, electricity is our largest cost. So somebody needs to know about electricity and and spend the time to do that and that's just one small facet and then regulatory changes that are constantly happening and um, some of them very quickly and and with brought you know breadth of of impact effectively to the work that we do every day or that way that it's been done historically and so there's just there's a lot to it and and the business i think if you're trying to do all of those things and learn a new aspect of it or or do something different we have tons of friends who made a ton of money and been very successful in resource plays and i mean I look at buddies like Gabe Ellisor. I mean, the Three Rivers—they right. killed it a couple, three times in a row, you know. And so sometimes you, you sit in your seat and you go, "Gosh, we should have done that." And w- and some of those deals we had opportunities on, um, and we've seen deals that we passed on because they were resource-driven opportunities, and then somebody else bought them for X and sold it for four X three years later, and we go, right. "You know, dang, we should have we should have done that." But You see that in the casino a lot too.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I I should have gone to play blackjack or shoot craps with them. So yeah. Right. So at
0: the end of the day, you know, for us, it's everything we do is to try to, you know, buy assets that we know and understand. Um, And then we, and we try to manage out as many of the variables as possible. So we have a very active hedging strategy that starts with every time we acquire an asset, we, we hedge at least 50% through our forecasted payout plus some return uh, right. so we, we have a rate of return target and so you know we're often buying an asset and hedging 50 percent of the production for five years six years um we do things sometimes like we'll buy out of the money calls above our swaps because and it's one of those things I, I say this about a lot of stuff that we do you know most of what we do that that really works well we didn't do right the first time and it wasn't yeah. we were sitting around we had some brilliant idea but it was we fell, scraped our knees and said, we're not going to do that again. And that was 2008 oil was $147 in July. And we have $30 hedges from a deal that we bought <laughs> in 2003. And so our settlements are through the roof every month. And we go, you know, if we had just bought some $80 calls when oil was 30, they would have cost zero. Five cents. <laughs> Nothing, yeah, exactly. right? yeah. And so, you know, we would, and what ends up happening, obviously is field costs start to go up and they creep up with, with oil prices. And so you can, in effect, get margin squeezed some, you know, or your right. margin does get squeezed as a result of your, um, uh, your LOE going up and your revenue being fixed by, by the hedges. So we do stuff like that and we hedge all of our electricity. Said, what I always said when I was in the, the seat is
1: I can't tell you what to do, but I can tell you what not to do because of things we screwed up. You know, I mean, Absolutely. your mistakes are your biggest teachers. They're- Absolutely. So let's do this, Let's because you and I went and ate dinner, what, about three weeks ago, four weeks ago, and you told me a story, and I haven't seen anything in the press on this. I really haven't heard it talked about in the industry, and so I was kind of sitting there at dinner, shocked about it, that it hasn't been a bigger deal. So walk me through kind of what happened during winter storm URI, and for those out there listening, that's when ERCOT almost went down. We had, whatever, the week and a half. Of where you know all hell broke loose, was that February of 21? It was
0: February of 21, yeah. So it started Valentine's Day, oddly enough. Um, so February 14th was a Sunday, and you know, all of a sudden, as the day and, and we knew this earlier the week before, we knew that this was coming, everyone knew it was coming to what extent, obviously, we didn't really know, but um electricity companies that we ca- their counterparties to us were were talking about it the week before they were going out and procuring reserves and things like that knowing that it was going to be a pretty bad week but the fort- the night of the 14th is when it really started to get bad and folks started to um experience loss of power just with grid issues as you know temperatures um i mean sustained temperatures over that week of sub 10 degrees in a lot of places across the state and and uh so anyway, ERCOT in their normal emergency response protocol uh called an EEA one. So an electricity emergency or energy emergency uh level That's one. code for
1: shit hitting the fan. <laughs> <laughs> that's the first level of, the, of the shit
0: is hitting the fan. So that's like when you see, hey, you know, change the temperature on your thermostats and you know, conserve individual messages to folks to conserve. Uh, power and it's on the news use and all a blanket kind of stuff. put on a sweater that exactly kind of stuff, yeah and then EEA 2 is the next level and EEA 2 got called uh like monday morning at like 1 a.m call it and at EEA 2 is when what are called responsive reserves or load uh acting as a re- as reserve it's lar is an acronym that's used a lot load acting as a reserve um when those assets get deployed so effectively like we have all these assets that um you know huge oil and gas leases and units that produce tons of fluid you know lots of horsepower Big running huge
1: plumbing operations that need a lot of power to
0: run pumps and exactly like, yeah you know pumps with 500 horsepower motors on the surface reinjecting the water that we've produced and then and then you know copious amounts of pumps, downhole pumps and and beam pumping units that are producing the oil. And so we have we're we're enrolled in in this system called LAR or responsive reserve uh, with ERCOT, where we have mechanical devices on the power on the grid effectively coming into our properties. Uh, so you have what's called an under frequency relay and and that When the frequency of the grid starts to drop it will cut our power and it's just a when the frequency that the grid is operating on is falling that's a uh, a failure effectively within the grid so or a sign that there's trouble on the grid and so that can cut our power and then we have these um remote operated reclosures which is basically like a big circuit breaker that you would have in your house but much much larger that's remote controlled and so they send a control signal to our sites to shut them down. So it opens the breaker, so no power flows to our assets. And so we have on any given day, about 36 and a half megawatts of power, um, in that system and available for ERCOT to call on if they need it. And so, and, and we're one of thousands of folks who participate in, in, in this program. Um, Oxy, for example, I, I can't prove it, but I, I hear that their numbers about 600 megawatts that they have in the system. Again, ours is 36 and a half or so. Um, I've heard Apaches is around 20, and they've had more in the past before asset sales and things. But uh, but lots of oil and gas operators who are operating mature properties that have you know a significant load like like ours do um, are in the system. And so Monday morning that. Eea two got called, which means Lar gets deployed, which means all of our assets got shut down. So everything shut down. And
1: and just real quick, so Lar is a voluntary program.
0: It's a voluntary program. Back back
1: when back when uh, the winter storm Yuri hit, it's a voluntary program. And does ERCOT pay you to shut down, or pay you for the right to shut you down whenever they want? That's right. Okay, so you got so
0: it. you bid in a volume of uh, some quantity of power that you have uh, available and and that you have this appropriate telemetry and control on um so when you if you're going to get into the system you go and acquire uh you know all of this um, equipment effectively and you set it at each of your sites that you're going to enroll and you test it and then you enroll it with ERCOT, and then you bid that power in each day for in a day ahead market for the following day and then you get paid a market rate for that. So generators are buying replacement reserves and, uh, or reserve power. And so they're, they're buying from you, uh, but it's all coordinated through ERCOT. So there's a market price for it and that market price fluctuates. And, um, so, you know, in the shoulder months in the spring and and fall, it may be worth, you know, $5 a megawatt hour. And, in um, you know, winter and the heat of the summer, it could be, $1,000 thousand dollars a megawatt hour. Uh, there's no cap on it like there has been on electricity at prices in the past. And so um, during winter storm Yuri, we saw it trading at like eighteen to twenty thousand dollars an hour okay. per megawatt hour. So um, obviously pretty expensive. And the reason why it was so expensive is there was none available, none right. none to be bought. And historically, we've we've had
1: so just just to make sure I understand. And my mom listens to this. So every once in a while, we've got to do the, the simple down punchline for mom. This is the airline's full, and they're, they're giving you a first-class seat and $300 to take the next flight, basically. That's, that's what ERCOT's doing?
0: That's a great way to think okay, about it. Yeah, it. It's, yeah, it's effectively, you're getting paid to give them the ability to take your power offline. And what that does in effect for the grid is it's the same as firing up generation. Right, yeah. But immediate. Right. Unlike, you know, you got to go out and you got to do all this stuff. It's literally flip a switch, and there's 30, in our case, just with our assets, there's 36 and a half megawatts in the market immediately available for households and whoever else needs it. And so that morning it got called. It's been, we've had a LAR event almost every year. We'll have one, even maybe two. Uh, Typically, they last a couple of hours. So it's a hot July. August evening, you know five o'clock in the afternoon, the hottest part of the day, whatever and we'll go down for a couple of hours is gotcha. what's happened historically. there's never been a time that I that I know of in the 20 years that that we've been involved in this where an ERCOT or a lara event crossed a calendar day boundary. Well in this case it was 4.3 days they called it at 1 30 Monday morning and then we they recalled it so they deployed it and then they recalled it Friday morning at like 9 30. So between, for that four, over four-day period, everybody that was enrolled in LAR was off. So and how, bi- LAR. how big is that market, the LAR
1: market back then?
0: Back then, it was like 3 gigawatts, so 3,000 megawatts or 3 million kilowatts okay. of power uh, that was getting bid in.
1: Okay. And so I, uh, I've never been a power guy, but I read this somewhere. I think the biggest draw, this bottle's been messed up. And I literally sat it down and it spilt water all over, but fortunately it didn't hit any, <laughs> any of the equipment. But um no, so I I I was reading some place, and does this sound right that the biggest draw ERCOT's ever had on the system was I think 75 gigawatts. And that was I think August of 2019. Right. So you've got three gigawatts participating in this program. And biggest draw ever seventy five. What's kind of the? Do you know at the average
0: gigawatt on the ERCOT system? It's like forty. Like if you pulled it up right now, it's probably forty ish. Okay. So I think for March, the average was right around forty gigawatts of of load around the clock. Okay. Yeah. So three out of forty. I mean, you're what seven eight percent, something like that. So, um, so it's a meaningful amount. And and you know, at the end of the day, if what we heard it consistently and and it was all over the news and everything else and all the reports. UT put out a report, University of Houston put out a report. Comptroller's office has a report. There's lots of reports on what happened during winter storm Uri, right. and, and pretty much everyone points to that the grid was minutes away from complete and utter disaster that might have taken, you know, a very long time to recover from. You hear weeks, months, whatever. And so we can't fathom what it would like, what it would, what that would be like for our grid to be down for months. Right, <laughs> yeah, you know? I, I mean, what do you do? So, um, so this this is in my mind, and and I think historically the pricing. I mean, people are willing to pay for this, right? So it's worth something. It's valuable. It's uh, at the end of the day, the ERCOT's job, and as indicated by the R in ERCOT, is reliability of the grid, right? And yeah. so this is a tool that helps enhance the reliability of the grid. It, it gives you. You know all these folks that are running consistently. Our load, the shape of our load, is flat, right? These pumps run twenty four seven. Right. They don't. They don't care whether it's hot or cold. They run. Right. right? They don't care if it's. It's not an eight office where the lights are on or whatever. Yeah. Exactly. So it's perfect. It's like base load generation, effectively. Yeah. It's always there. It's always available. They flip a switch and they have our load into the grid to give to somebody else who needs it more. And I think we would all agree that. During winter storm year, there were plenty of people that needed it more than oil producers Right at the end of the day. And so, I mean, look, it, it cost us a ton to have you know all of these assets down for four and a half days. And, and it's not just the cost of the lost production. It's the cost of the failure of the equipment from being down. The equipment wants to run. It runs best when it's running consistently. And so- Well, what what does the temperature
1: do? Because, I mean, at the end of the day, stuff comes out of the ground hot, but- I mean, it, I know at my
0: house I turn on a faucet to keep the water running during a freeze. So right, so similar. Similarly, in our case, you would want things to run. So if if you're not running, as as you alluded or mentioned, you know, the water's coming out of the ground. In our case, let's say it's 105 degrees. Um, it's moving through the system pretty quickly. So in a lot of cases, we're moving a hundred times the amount of fluid. That we're actually uh relative to the oil production that we have. And so we have fields that are producing hundreds of thousands of barrels of water a day. 1% water cut. <laughs> one percent water. One one percent oil cut. Yeah. A oil cut. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So if it was one percent water, water cut, cut. yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> we, we could be shooting this on the back of a yacht somewhere. But <laughs> right. um, but anyway, so we're moving lots of fluid and the fluid's moving through the system very quickly. It's not sitting in any one place very long. And it's salt water. So um obviously the well, maybe not obviously, but yeah. but salt water uh, has a much lower freezing point than, than fresh water. And so we always think, like we all learned in school, standard 32 degrees uh, for freezing water. But most of the salt water that exists in the oil patches are probably around 12 to 15 degrees would be the freezing point. And so to get from 105 degrees that's coming out of the ground at to sub 12, it's going to have to sit somewhere for a while. Um, but just flowing through pipes for you know, a few hundred yards here and there through a pump and right back out into the ground um, or sitting in a tank that turns over five, six times a day with, you know, fresh hot right. water coming in all day. Um, you know, if, if everything is running, everything works. And then the areas, so we have production outside of ERCOT in Texas. Orcot covers about 90% of Texas. And then you've got areas in East Texas and in the Panhandle and El Paso that are not part of ERCOT and so our, our properties that aren't part of ERCOT aren't enrolled in LAR and, um, and ran the entire time and nothing broke, you know? Um, but the properties that are involved in LAR are enrolled in, in LAR that were shut down, you know, all this water sits in these pipes, freezes, obviously we were definitely sub 12 and 15 degrees for some period of time. And as it's freezing, then you get into the same issues that you'd have in your home Do pipes break, headers, you know, all of the equipment, um, has the potential to fail as a result of, of this water freezing and, and going through that process and then thawing later. And so we didn't lose, I mean, f- we were very fortunate. We didn't lose a ton of equipment, but we're, we're almost guaranteed to lose a couple of pumps every time we go down. And when I say pumps, I'm talking like electric submersible pumps. So downhole pumps right. that, um, you know, 30, 40, $50,000 a shot plus labor rig time, et cetera, to replace them and then lost production. And that just happens because these yeah. pumps don't want to be shut off abruptly and then fired back up after sitting there. And if you have any kind of suspended solids in the fluid column that settle down the fluid column as it's sitting there back into the pump and then you fire it up and just doesn't, doesn't work out always the best. So, uh, so we want to run, but there's a, the economic value of being enrolled in LAR offsets the the opportunity that that we could lose some equipment here and there, and it's typically never been more than for a couple of hours. So uh, the lost production hasn't really ever been that great. In this case, obviously, four and a half days or four point three days, it was. It was a different yeah. deal, but um, so we go down. and But but ERCOT needed the power then.
1: I mean, absolutely, they, they, they really did, and so. Do you have any idea kind of magnitude wise, whether it's you going down or everybody in the LAR program going down, what that kind of meant in terms of other people that got to use the power, whether that's I don't even know what we'd talk about, households or something <laughs> like that. Yeah, that.
0: there's so there's some metrics that are widely accepted, I, okay. I suppose. So when you think about when I think about our load, um, you know, thirty-five, thirty six, thirty six and a half megawatts of power. Um you know, it's probably approaching thirty thousand households. Okay. You know, somewhere, somewhere in the order of thirty thousand households, and then, you know, if we're thirty six megawatts, and the entire market is three gigawatts, then you know, multiply, multiply that ten, by eight or
1: ten or yeah,
0: whatever. <laughs> right.
1: Oh yeah, 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 yeah.
0: Exactly. So, so now we're talking. I mean, even just like, let's say someone like Oxy, who let's say they're six hundred, or let's let's say the the seven hundred megawatts that are missing today from LAR that went from about three gigs down to about two point three gigs. So that seven hundred is missing. That's over half a million rooftops. Yeah. Based on kind of widely accepted standard sure. average utilization for electricity. So that's a good sized town. Right. That that could have stayed on uh because of you know this quantity to run of their load. heating,
1: all all the stuff that electricity does. Exactly. And 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 so, you know, I don't know that I want shots fired at me for saying what happened, but I think some facts, because I went on the uh, websites and basically, you know, they record wind speeds during, you know, periods of time. So while that mess was going on, I was looking through that. And what I don't think people appreciate necessarily about wind power and like last month, wind power made, what, 50% of the electricity on the grid? I mean, it's not insignificant. Texas is a wind state. Absolutely. You know, whenever they talk about the generating capacity of wind, it's the nameplate. And nameplate means like 25 miles per hour wind, 25 to 30.
0: Consistently.
1: Consistently, 24 hours a day. yeah. yeah. Right. And you can't go above certain, you know, you can't get certain miles per hour else it doesn't work. And I think to even produce a little bit of electricity, it's got to be at least ten or twelve miles per hour. so you kind of have this spot so one of the things I did is I went and looked at Amarillo Abilene. I'm forgetting the name of the 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 county that's kind of just west of College Station that has all the wind power in it, and then the largest wind power developments in south texas and And so I looked at all that. And if you look at kind of because they give you eight hour blocks of wind average speed, there was only one or two eight hour blocks in any of those areas where the wind speed was above 12 miles per hour. So you, you had kind of the shutdown of wind and I'm not trash. I promise I'm not trashing wind on this. I'm just saying that was a fact. So wind didn't show up. I think another big, measure that happened is natural gas has water in it and it froze so we just didn't have the natural gas production that we normally have and so a lot of our you know, what is it a third of our electricity is generated from natural gas something like mm-hmm. that so when you don't have the delivery there as well as natural gas I believe gets prioritized to houses to heat houses as opposed to power generation so you did have that as a as a as an issue There. Although one quick side note, I don't know if I told you this at dinner the other night, you know, a nuclear power plant shut down during that whole mess because a sensor that measured the water temperature of the wastewater coming out failed. And so they have to shut down because of that. Supposedly one of the engineers in there was like, hey guys, I'll just stick my hand in the water. It's pretty freaking cold. When it warms (laughs) up, I'll tell you and we'll shut in then. Yeah.
0: Anyway can't do that so i saw that stat actually i, I was just going through what had failed and, and you don't expect nuclear to go down right right and it's pretty stable power yeah. so um when i saw that i i didn't dig as deep as you did i didn't see what the exact <laughs> root of the issue was but was like, no it's but, fine yeah it's cold no we're good yeah no meltdown happening here yeah so you know when i i think in march it was like 40 percent or so of 35 percent of of the power generation, uh, for the state of Texas and, um, natural gases call it 30, right? We all had problems. It was, uh, it was the perfect storm, so to speak. And and it was very uncomfortable for everyone and it caused a lot of damage and it was a lot of, uh, if it could go wrong, it did go wrong. And we just haven't seen that in that I recall. I mean, I don't ever remember a time when it stayed that cold, that long, the roads, you know, we got hit with sleet and then we got hit with snow and it was just bad. And, um, so at the end of the day, we, every, everything that could have possibly failed seemed to have failed and the natural gas, you know, so the natural gas supply chain effectively, um, in, in my opinion, I mean, I, I saw very little in terms of news about the wind side, right? I knew it had happened right. because I, I see you know, ERCOT has an app that's pretty great and it shows real time. You can see, um, pretty localized where lo, uh, you know, real-time power prices are and it's right. an indication of uh, congestion on the grid and demand and load and all of that and so i was watching that real time all the way through the storm so i knew what was going on but the news that i heard after the fact was the natural gas supply chain failed right you know it wasn't these windmills were you know, covered in ice and not, you know, wind was not blowing. so, well, it's um, it's that they weren't
1: winterized. That was the (laughs) problem with wind. You know,
0: it's those greedy energy companies didn't
1: winterize. And it was just like, no, there's really no wind. There's no wind.
0: Yeah. I don't know how you, how you adapt for that. But, um, so, you know, the, I, what we saw very, very quickly, you know, within 120 days, there was legislation passed. Uh, so the state, all of the, the, uh, regulators, all got together very, very quickly and acted in, in response. I think within within ten days or so, you had half of the board of ERCOT resigned. Right. right, so it was a very the the reaction was quick and it was it was forceful and strong and and rightfully so. I so mean, there's this no was, question. This was
1: funny. I was tweeting out jokes about each one of the members of the ERCOT board while it was going on, <laughs> and they shut down the website so that I couldn't access who the board was anymore. Now. I think they were just doing that as a matter of fact, but I like to say my tweeting tweet. brought down, <laughs> brought down the ERCOT website. Yeah.
0: ERCOT.com slash board of directors. Board of
1: directors went away. Bye-bye. But, uh, yeah, no, it was uh so I went to the new chairman and I'm blanking on her name. Actually a week before had, had been named chairman and she had posted on LinkedIn. I'm so grateful to join a world-class organization. I was tweeting stuff like this aged well and you know, <laughs> yeah and everything, but no, so Senate Bill 3, I think, was, was the legislation that came out, and this is the guts, this is the punchline of what we're talking about today, because like I said, I have not heard much of a story about this, but what did Senate Bill 3 do? And then let's talk about the unintended consequence, because I think this is really important.
0: Yeah. So as, as I mentioned, this this happened very quickly. Senate Bill 3 um, and House Bill 3648 were passed, you know, within four months of, of Winter Storm yuri and, and actually, I think June 18th is when uh, the governor signed um, those two bills. And so they directed that. Effectively, all of these state agencies who have some interplay here, whether it be the Public Utilities Commission of Texas, Royal Commission, um, et cetera, that they were directed effectively to do things to ensure that the reliability of the grid was improved. And and that included um, ensuring that the natural gas supply chain was intact and winterized and uh, things that we've never really talked about or thought about as natural gas producers anyway, you know, and so. Um, so that came out, the, the Roto commission had its marching orders effectively from the legislature now. And, um, and so then they acted fairly quickly to try to accommodate with rulemaking, uh, that would, that would prove out to that end effectively or that desired objective. And so, um, so they went to work and they wrote some, some rules to do so. And so, um, effectively you, you, had, the roto commission saying with with quite a bit of pressure from the legislative bodies to say hey we've got to do something here to ensure that natural gas flows it gets through process it gets from the wellhead through processing and to generators effectively regardless of temperature and so there's this supply chain map there's a critical infrastructure map uh and one of the things that that came out of it well there's a few things but one was that Natural gas producing properties, whether it be a natural gas well that makes more than 15 MCF a day or an oil property, an oil lease that makes more than 50 MCF a day, they are now deemed critical. So that was the effective result. And part of that process is that if you are an operator of a, a property that meets those tests, then you have to file semi-annually. You have to file a form with a Roto Commission designating those assets as critical. and so it's called a form CID. And so the first of those forms was due a couple months back and then I think the next one's due in September. So right now we don't have this this critical designation critical supply chain map to know if our assets are on it that's forthcoming. Um, and we don't have the rules necessarily for what does winterization mean. But we do know that our assets are critical or or they are or they qualify for an exemption. And the exemption would be that they are natural gas well that makes less than fifteen mcf a day, or an oil lease that makes less than fifty mcf a day. Let's real quick
1: for mom's sake, you know, a typical brand new horizontal well, a third or forty percent of an oil well's production is associated natural gas. Right. So it's not binary, mom. It's you. You have natural gas and oil coming out of the same out of the the same well. Water floods, even though. We're talking 1% oil cuts and, you know, you're moving a ton of water. You've got your skin in effect, skimming the oil out of it. They still make natural gas.
0: They still make a little associated yeah. natural gas. So we're not, you know, our wells are making a couple MCF a day here and there, you know, and that sort of thing. So, um, uh, and the reason why they brought in the oil lease designation was to recognize that, especially out. You know, in the resource resource plays, you've got these huge wells that are making a million cubic feet of gas a day, right? right. And they're making a bunch of oil, but they are making you know a significant amount of natural gas. So they're designated oil wells on oil leases by the Railroad Commission, and so that's why they lumped or they brought in this bucket. Makes total sense. Everyone's cool with that. It's the threshold that becomes problematic, and then that there's no other test, and so that's kind of where we'll go. So you look at our our properties ton of electricity demand require load required to move all of this fluid the natural gas production is very very small we have we have single singular oil leases that make that have 500 wells on them so you know you have 500 wells and you're making a little bit of natural gas here and there you're using a ton of electricity to run the 500 wells and then you know the three two or three big horizontal pumps on the surface to put away the water to reinject the water Uh, the produced water. And so, um, you know, really in, in my mind, and this was the conversation that we were having at dinner is the best test is an asset should be critical. If the value of the natural gas, when converted to electricity is greater than the load that the, that the asset has, or, you know, effectively the load that the asset creates in terms of electricity usage. And so at the end of the day, if, if our asset can, can make, you know, one megawatt of, uh, of natural gas value and when converted to electricity, it can make one megawatt a day or one megawatt hour, let's say of, of electricity, but we're using 30 megawatt hours. You know, you would think that you would want- That's minus 29.
1: I learned that. (laughs) I learned that. I learned that in third grade. So the grid's down
0: 29 megawatts in that situation. Right, and so you would think that you would not want that asset to be critical. And and, and what, does
1: critical mean so? Does critical mean
0: that it has to be producing when, in in effect when the shit
1: hits the fan?
0: Right, and the the intent is to say if an asset is deemed critical, then the, all of the utilities, the grid, will ensure that those critical meters effectively continue to receive power when others don't. So when you get to, I mentioned EEA-1 and EEA-2, EEA-3 is rolling blackout. So that's what we got to very quickly at the beginning of Winter Storm URI. And so in an EEA-3 environment, historically it was kind of indiscriminate, right? You just, you know, this leg of, uh, you know, power supply lines turns off. Right. And everyone on it di- turns off. Um, today it's it's far more targeted. I mean, you know, you you saw a lot of hospitals continue to, maintain power police stations fire stations stuff like that maintain power because of the use of smart meters and and better technology on the grid today than what we had you know 20 years ago let's say Um, but the idea is that long term that every asset that's deemed critical would continue to run and would be prioritized in terms of receiving electricity from the grid over everyone that's not deemed critical well your house is never going to be deemed critical right i mean you're healthy young man, (laughs) (laughs) you know, so you're going to get, and when there is a rolling blackout, you're going to get uh, uh, displaced effectively. You're going to lose power. And at least that we have in West Texas is going to continue to receive power, even though in effect, it could be negative to the grid for us to receive power relative to the natural gas that could be created. So the, the goal is Let's generate as much natural gas as we can. Let's ensure that it's all on, not generate as much as we can, but ensure that it stays on so that it gets through the supply chain, gets to the generators, so that we can make as much electricity as we can or need. And at the same time, the net effect of the way the rule is written today is you stay running and you're using a ton of electricity and you're generating very little natural gas, but it's in excess of 50 MCF a day and the grid would be... Would greatly benefit from you being down. I mean, in our case, we we've done that math and we submitted that math in connection with our application for exemption. So we're applying for our assets to be exempt from critical status. We don't so,
1: so basically the legislation said, hey, if you got more than 50 MCF, you're deemed critical. Unless the railroad commission says otherwise. Is that kind I, of an oversimplification? They can give exemptions to it?
0: I think the fifty and fifteen are railroad commission rules purely. Okay. Right. So okay. the so the direction from the legislature was ensure the supply chain stays intact okay, gotcha. and, and reliability happens. And then the then the railroad commission had to go through this rulemaking. And they worked with the P C T and they worked with ERCOT and everyone else and and you know they came up with a perfectly well intended. Yeah. Right. And and as most things are, I think, I don't think anyone was sitting around going, hey, whatever. So um, they roll out the rules. We all see them. There are plenty of similarly situated operators like us who said, whoa, 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 wait, we participate in LAR, which is a huge resource to the grid and, and supports reliability in a significant way. Um, and the value of our natural gas when converted to electricity is minimal. Pales in comparison. Exactly. Yeah. And and so, um, but the rule was kind of by the time the proposed rule came out, it was so far down the road, I think, that it wasn't open for interpretation. There were a couple of exemptions. You could file for an exemption. There is a form that you file. It's a CIX, uh, with a row Commission, and you list out the assets, and then you have to supply with that, um. It it literally says in the rule, like justification for your exception, objective justification for your exception. Well, the rules say, don't say only these couple things will get you an exception. They do say the, here are a couple of examples. Okay. And one of those examples is the natural gas never leaves the lease. Right. So if the natural gas is used on lease for some purpose or whatever the case may be, it never would make it into the supply chain anyway. Well, that's a pretty black and white. We get that. Makes sense. Perfect.
1: Plus, we want to shut you down if you're drawing any electricity. In that case, anyway, so, exactly. Okay, yeah, yeah right. Yeah. So that I totally sense. agree with
0: that. So we we submit our our form CIX, our our request for exemption, so that we can continue to participate in Lar and and serve that purpose. Um, and we supply the math. And the math is, you know, it's at least six, if not eight to ten times more valuable for us to be off. Than it is for us to be on. The maximum value that you could get from the natural gas that we produce would be a fraction, a sixth, an eighth, whatever that number is. Um, depending on how you look at it, there's lots of ways to look at it. But um, you know, we're not factoring shrink and line loss and processing and it's gotta be compressed, which takes energy getting to bring to market. Um, every
1: MCF is probably unique and ultimately where it is on how much electricity, but back of the envelope, if we make estimates and it's six to eight times the amount of power you're using, right? Yeah. Or less six to eight times the amount of power you're using versus what you could produce even theoretically that high. Yeah. Yeah, Let's shut
0: them in. And you know, Mike, so our, our CEO, Mike Foster, he's got this great habit of when he's you know, trying to com- make a point clear, just taking it to hyperbole, and so, sure. you know, in this case, he would he would be the guy that says something like, "Okay, so let's say you're using eight gigawatts of power, and you're making fifty one MCF. You still think we should run eight gigawatts of, of load? Have to, run. Yeah, IRCOT, have to run. Yeah, have to run.
1: ercot can't even shut us off if they want to. Right. The uh, yeah.
0: the grid operator can't shut you off. So I think that makes the point. And then I think the reality of the situation is it probably needs to be. 1.1 1. 1 to 1 or 1 to 1 or something like that. So they're, they're, I think the right thing for reliability, I think the right thing for the intended outcome here for the grid and for operators and, and everyone involved, but mainly the people of the great state of Texas is to say, you know, if if it is more valuable to shut you off than it is to get to receive your gas into the supply chain, we're going to shut you off. You know, and um, and so that's that's kind of where this whole thing
1: yeah, no and that is that, today. that surprised me cuz I've I've killed a few brain cells thinking through this cuz normally when any industry wants out of regulation at the end of the day it's cuz it costs a lot of money. This really isn't a money grab. This is pure an unintended consequence because you know as we discussed earlier it actually costs you money if you get shut down. Now if you can participate in large, you get paid back and all, but over 4.3 days, that's not a, enough of everything for you to wanna be fighting against this. It really is just one of the things that I don't think the Railroad Commission sat down and thought through, okay, there are some assets out there that just use a lot more power than they could generate.
0: Right, and and I'm I'm sure, we, we talk about this all the time in different things. You You try to paint the brush to get the objective met. And there's always going to be nuances that are missed i think and, and this is definitely one of them but um because i don't think i, I don't think when laid in front of them i mean we we filed for a hearing i can i guess i can disclose that but we filed for a hearing uh with the royal commission to um to uh, object effectively to their denial of ours so play that forward we applied for the exemption from critical status and we were denied and and what we heard in the denial was effectively you know, your gas does leave the lease. So these couple little exemption that were kind of stated known example exemptions, we didn't meet one of those two. Um, And so our objective evidence that we put forth, which was the math to say the electricity value is far greater than the natural gas converted to electricity value. um, I just don't know that it was even considered. There were um, hundreds of these applications filed and so, and from what i've heard i'm not familiar with anyone who's had theirs approved for exemption yet so lots of hearings will be filed for we'll go through the the process um and i hope that the result of that process is just uh, not just that we get our exemption but that the road commission is able to rule make around that to say hey here's a standard that makes sense if you're using a ton of electricity in your natural gas the electricity value of your natural gas is significantly less than that or any any factor less than that, uh, then you should be able to apply for and receive exemption from critical status. At the end of the day, you know if people are dying and we, we lost 200, 210 or so people during winter storm Uri and tons and tons of people displaced in all kinds of very uncomfortable ways and um, you know billions of dollars worth of damage in the state, Eighty, I think the number's like 80 to $120 billion worth of damage is the estimate. It was caused by winter storm Erie and we're out there producing oil that is dilutive to the grid effectively. It just, it doesn't make sense. So, um,
1: yeah. And the thing that worries me and why I really appreciate you coming on the podcast, because like I said, I hadn't seen stories about this and I want to make sure the word gets out. Um, the thing that gets me is, okay, we're going to have these hearings and, and the railroad commission will figure it out and do the right thing. But it's April. And August is when the shit hits the fan, you know? And so you you kind of wish that the presumption had been if you have more power usage than your natural gas does, we're gonna give you your we're gonna assign the exemption to you or deem you not critical unless we study and come back and tell you otherwise. That that's what worries me, because how long do these hearings take before we figure it out? And this is a shared. Kind of problem we're going to have. Can you imagine if people, you know, damage, people die, all this because we're out producing oil? I it's, mean, it's not yeah. a good look. It's, it's little, just <laughs> not.
0: We've got plenty of other, you There's know, a,
1: it, and I can see the headlines right now in the New York and New York Times. You know, damn Texans produce oil and let people die, and it's right. Yeah,
0: it's. I mean, we we have plenty of other, you know, things to overcome in our industry. I think in general, and I I think right now people are seeing how important our industry is. For the first time in a long time, uh, I think right. we got away from that, but I, I still think that folks, I mean, it's it just, it's not the right thing to do, no matter how you slice it, dice it. Um, and so really the issue to, I mean, to your point of August is coming, everyone's been so focused on winter storm URI. I have been as well, but you know, the majority of our, lar events have been called are maybe equally distributed, but they're either you know late July, early August, January, February, that's when they happen, right, and the heat kills just like the cold does, yeah, um, I think I don't yeah. I don't have any stats to back that up, but I know people die when it's hot, yeah so uh and it and it causes damage, maybe not the f- same financial damage, but it's a bad deal now fortunately the the process here is to be involved in lar you have to have filed an attestation with ERCOT that you are not critical. That came out before the uh, before we had received word back that we were declined our exemption from critical status. Right. So we filed for the exemption from critical status. We filed an attest. We attested to the fact that our assets were not critical because they right. had not been deemed critical yet. And then once we got the denial of our exempt status – and. And ERCOT's thing says, are you are you critical, and not just under our definitions of critical, but under any other regulatory body that defines right. critical, and and so Rural commission being one of those. And so, um, you know, so we go through this this process, we get denied, and then so long as you filed for a hearing, you're able to continue to participate in law until there's some definitive answer. That you are critical. Kenlay is technically not guilty
1: of all of <laughs> all of the stuff because he had appeals left. But go ahead. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. So
0: so until there's some final unappealable right. whatever. Right. right. Um, so I mentioned earlier, you know, the the universe of LAR, which doesn't represent the whole picture here, but it's a significant piece. I it's think it's a
1: proxy. We can use it for a proxy.
0: So it was three gigs. It's 2.3 gigs now. And that's just because a lot of people have gotten out because they didn't want to go through that process. I'm actually working towards an asset acquisition today where the folks who are operating that asset knew they were selling the asset. They weren't gonna go fight for exemption. exemption. And it's a, it's a historically LAR participating property. So it hasn't participated in LAR since the end of the year because of this process. So there's a lot of folks out there in that boat. And then you've got all the other folks out there like us who have filed for exemption, who have now filed for a hearing and are still participating my question is what is that three goes to 2.3 what does 2.3 go to if we all definitively hear back that we don't get the exemption because because
1: i mean like we were saying earlier i think the biggest straw ever has been 75 gigs if it's a gig or two that doesn't sound like a lot two or three percent but man when the shit hit in the fan those are real molecules that need to be part of the real electrons that need to be on the system Absolutely. at that point. And so
0: if yeah. you were, if you were half a half a gig short and you had access to a gig, you know, yeah. or you had access to, you know, 501 megawatt hours you or 501 megawatts of load, you'd pay anything for it. Yeah. You know, if it meant the disaster that we heard almost happened back in February, um, you know, I mean, what, what would the state have paid, for that incremental unit at that point. Yeah.
1: <laughs> to avoid no, to avoid that's, all of that. That's that's absolutely right. So, Nathan, you're really cool to come on and tell this story. Hopefully, we'll get some publicity about it and some rationality will take over kind of this process. Cause as I said at the time, I don't know what's more embarrassing. Is it being the hub of the energy business and we can't run a grid? Or is it we're
0: Texans and we can't run a grid? So <laughs> Let's run a grid, guys. Yeah, I agree completely. That's that's the situation where there's an opportunity. There's a great opportunity here to yeah. do the right thing, I think, that will result in better reliability for our state. And, you know, so we just need to work this process through. And this is pretty technical like kind of nerdy stuff to talk through there's lots of other things we could have spent our time talking about but i well, feel like and, it's and in in defense important. of the railroad
1: commission cuz they do get bashed uh, a lot but in defense of them this is second lo- second order type effects that quite frankly i didn't appreciate just hearing about the legislation and you until you told me hey what about this this is getting caught up in
0: it so yeah it's a big deal and it and they were i mean we're all under significant pressure. I think anyone that has any role to play there is under significant pressure to do the right thing. And that I, I don't question their intention at all. I don't question the legislature or the legislator's intention at all. Um, just one of those things that I wish that as it was going through the process that, you know, maybe industry or, or whoever could have provided some more guidance to say, Hey hey guys, what about this? hold on. Yeah. Cause it, it could represent of that three gigawatts that we originally we had in last year. I mean, I think, I think it's very fair to say that it's probably half or better of that, that if this continues on the way it's been interpreted so far, would be lost from the system. So yeah, totally. So we have to end it on this. I
1: don't know if I told you this the other night at dinner, but my dad goes out and gets solar panels and Tesla batteries on the house. And this is a couple of years ago. And I'm like, dad, that's great. But how much did that cost? He goes one hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars, but I never have to pay for electricity again. And I go, okay, Dad, what's the payback on that? And he goes twelve point three years. And I'm like, dude, you're eighty. <laughs> I mean, I go, nobody wants you here more to see payback than yeah. me. But you're eighty, and it's so anyway, extreme
0: buying green bananas. Yeah, exactly.
1: Right? <laughs> so during winter uh, storm Uri. I didn't think my house would ever get shut down because I'm in the middle of the police department, the fire department, and the hospital. Of course, grid goes out, power gets shut down, I'm freezing. I show up to my parents' house, I got my cat in the cat carrier under my arm. I walk in, I sit down in my parents' you know 75-degree house because mom likes it hot, and uh, dad whispers under his breath, 12.3 year
0: payback doesn't sound so bad right about now. Does it Chuck? <laughs> so, <laughs> so how were they, was it the batteries they were?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so basically, you know, the, the sun was out those days. So okay. dad's generating electricity. The batteries will basically run the house for two days. Okay.
0: Yeah. The so sun wasn't shining in Dallas. You guys had a little bit. We of had, we had a little bit of sun here. down <laughs> in Houston.
1: So anyway, Nathan, well, cool. thanks for coming on, dude. This no, was thanks
0: was for really having it's Great to hang
1: out. Absolutely.